Welcome to the ministry of Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray this message by Pastor John Roberts is a blessing to you. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. Well, I'm going to continue this series we've been on. Started back with Bephibosheth, looking at the, the covenants that, that Daniel, or not Daniel, but um, David and Jonathan entered into, and how Mephibosheth became the recipient of the, of the blessings, because his father and David, the king, entered into covenant and he got blessed. And in, it's a type of the blessing that we have. We just read about it a minute ago in Psalm 103. We receive all the blessings we receive because when, when God made covenant with Abram, then he knew Abram couldn't, couldn't fulfill his end of the covenant. And so basically God knocked him out. And Jesus came down and took Abram's place, came as a substitute for the man, and walked through those animals and said, if I break this covenant with my father, because it was a covenant between the father and the son, if I break this covenant, then this is what will happen to me. Well, thank God Jesus didn't break the covenant. But... He did have to die because He took on our breaking of the covenant. He took on the sin of Adam through the last man that will ever live. And He said, I will become sin. Paul says that. Jesus became sin for us. Does not say that He took on our sins, although He did that. Paul says... Jesus became sin. He took on the very nature of sin because that's what was required to redeem us from that. And everything that He did, He did because of all the stuff we have done. And He died. He conquered death. He conquered hell. He conquered the grave. He conquered every negative thing that the enemy's ever done. He conquered, and then when the price, our price was paid, there was no unrighteousness in Him. So He came out. And when He came out, He, you know, it's almost a picture, if you, if you remember reading through all the Gospels, when Jesus would deliver someone, it, in most of those cases it would say that the demon would tear the person before they left. Well, Jesus tore hell apart. He says, I have the keys of death and hell. He says, I, I made a show of Satan openly leading him about. That's a picture of, of, of um, a Roman conquering general. When he would come in, he would parade the king or the, the, the leader of whoever they just conquered. They, they would put a, an iron uh, collar around his neck and hook a chain to it. And before they got there, they would cut off his thumbs and cut off his big toes. He could never hold a sword, and he could never run. Without your big toe, you can't run very well. Without your thumb, you can't hold something. You, can, you hit someone with a sword, it just slips out. That would mean I cut off the power of that enemy. 
And then they would lead that person through Rome on a chain to declare to the world, this is your hero, this is your champion, and he's totally defeated. That's exactly what Jesus did to Satan. He took his power, cut off his toes, cut off his thumbs. He has no power to do to make warfare against us. With one small exception. He has your mouth. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you, James says it. The tongue is a powerful weapon. No man can tame it. Only God can tame it. And 99%, I've heard people say, well, the devil's been after me. Oh, honey, the devil don't care about you. He's not going to waste his time showing up at your door. 99% of the problems that we have originated and came out of our own mouths. We're going to see one of the things we're going to look at today. Um, Jesus said it, take no thought saying. It's our own tongue and our own mouth that gets us in trouble. Anyway, let me, let me back up here real quick. We looked a couple of weeks ago at Luke one thirty seven or Luke chapter 1, where the, the, the angel Gabriel came to Zacharias and he came to Mary and he gave them a pronouncement. This is God's will for you. Zacharias didn't agree with it. God shut him up. He closed his mouth off so he could not speak any more unbelief because God couldn't afford to have him foul that whole situation up. Mary did accept what, what Gabriel said, got the blessing for it. At the end of that, in verse 37 of Luke 1, Gabriel said, For with God nothing will be impossible. And we looked at that, the, the word there for nothing, normally in the New Testament, it's the Greek to, a compound word, upas. 227 times that occurs in the New Testament. means no thing. It's an absolute negative and absolute inclusive. There's nothing excluded from this. In this passage, the word is not upas, it's upas rhema. And it's the, it only occurs two places, here and in Matthew 17, 21, where Jesus has cast the devil out of this kid, and the father is pleading, help my unbelief, and Jesus turns to him and said, if you have the faith, as a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to the moving, or, or to the mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing, upas rhema, nothing revealed to you will be impossible for you. Now I can get in agreement mentally, I have no problem. Gabriel says nothing's impossible for God. Everything God says, it's going to happen. God's God. He wants something to happen. I'm not going to oppose Him. Even if I try to oppose him, like, no. I mean, there's no way I have any power to do that. But when he says, if I even have the, the faith as a grain of mustard seed, mustard seed's tiny. And he's not talking about planting it, growing it into a big bush. He's talking about if you just got this little bit of faith, if you get a revelation of the faith that you have in the Word, because let's face it, People talk, and I've had, I've had people say this, and it's become a watchword in our society today. Oh, I'm a person of faith. Faith in what? G.K. Chesterton, back in the early 20th century, 
um, very wise man, he said the problem with, with not believing the Bible is not that you believe the wrong thing, it's that you believe anything. When people tell me I'm a person of faith, meaning I'm not a Christian, I believe in everything, then you believe in nothing. Because you can't believe in everything. I get so tickled. I pull up behind cars sometimes, and I, I never have understood why. And if you have a bumper sticker, I apologize right now. I'm going to insult you. I spend thousands of dollars on my car. I don't understand why people put a big old stupid ugly bumper sticker on it. Now, if you want to put bumper stickers on yours, it's okay. But I, even my car, it's old and ugly. I'm still not going to run it with that. But sometimes you pull up, and, and I really love, sometimes I really get close because I want to read them. And the one I always love is the one that says coexist and has the different symbols for the different religious beliefs worldwide. And it always has the one for Christian, the one for Jews, and the one for Islam. And I'm saying, how am I supposed to coexist with them when they want to cut my head off? And, and, the, and the, the, the other problem is, they have mutually exclusive beliefs. Islam believes in Jesus. They believe he was a man, that he lived, that he, he may have even gone to the cross. Most of them won't admit that. Most of them say, yeah, probably not, that's a myth. None of them will say he's the son of God. None of them will say he is God incarnate. The Jews believe in the Torah. In fact, I've just got a new book. Uh, uh, Dennis Prager just came out with a new commentary on Exodus. He's a believing Jew, a practicing Jew. And I bought his commentary. Now I have to read it carefully because I know this is, a, this is a Jew interpreting Jewish literature without having faith in Jesus. And I've got copious notes in there because he really just gets a lot of things wrong. But he gets a lot of things right, too. Mainly because he's just been married to the Hebrew language his entire life. And he's in his 60s now, and he studied and taught the Torah from a Jewish perspective. And he has a very different perspective than me, and I've learned a lot from it. But he's not a Christian. You ask him, do you believe in Jesus? Well, I believe he, he was a historical character. Do you put your faith in him? No. I can coexist with them, but we can never come into agreement. They can't have the revelation that I have. But when God gives me a revelation of what his word says, there's power available to bring that about. Now, the, 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 the question is, if that's true, why am I not seeing more things happening? Well, part of it is we don't have the revelation on it. If it requires revelation to receive, and I'm never receiving, maybe I don't have the revelation. So how do I go from information? Because I know a lot of people. I had a pastor. In fact, when I first... Um, left teaching and went to went off to seminary. My pastor at the time, I went and sat down and talked to him. He's my pastor. I'm going to figure out, you know, I need his advice. Where should I go? Well, I was living in, in uh, Clarksville, Indiana, right across the, the river from Louisville, and Louisville had Southern Seminary, Southern Baptist Seminary. Great, good school. 
in his mind, he said, go to Southern. There's no better school. Well, the Southern was in the midst of the, the theological wars in the Baptist, Southern Baptist Convention at the time between the liberals and the conservatives. And there was a lot of turmoil there. But in my pastor's mind, that's where I needed to go because he had attended Lexington Theological Seminary. Comes out of the Disciples of Christ. And by his own admission, anywhere from a third to half of his professors, men with PhDs in some biblical topic, either in Old Testament, New Testament, Greek, whatever, just general theology, a third to half of his professors did not believe in the new birth. And when he told me that, I, wanted, I just grabbed my head. I thought, what? How? How would you, how would you, I mean, I admire people with, with doctorate degrees. It's not easy to get a doctorate. There's a lot of work involved. And you would go through all that trouble to get a doctorate in something you don't believe in. But they did. They were deceived. They had the opposite of the revelation. They were deceived. They just didn't believe in it. Well, how am I as a believer going to get to that? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, I believe, is, is one of the keys to it. And I'm going to let Chuck go there. We're going to start in verse 3. But let me read this to you because this is a parallel passage. It has the same thought. It's Romans 12, 1 and 2. It's where I closed last week. This is Barclay's translation. In the, the, the New King James, I know I just threw you a curve, but can you go ahead and pull Romans 12 up, Chuck? Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. New King James says, I beseech you therefore, brethren. Beseech is a word that means I'm down on my knees, I'm begging you guys. You know, when Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is on his knees saying, please, listen. I, man, you got to... This is something I need to pay attention to. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Oxymoron right there. Sacrifices die. It's the whole meaning of a sacrifice. You bring the animal in, you slit their throat, you drain their blood out into a pan, you offer the blood, that's the life of the animal, for, in, in place of you. How can you have a living sacrifice? We sacrifice our lives while we're still living. Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This is Barclay's translation of those two, two verses. Brothers, I call upon you by the mercies of God to present your bodies to Him, a living, consecrated sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, for that is the only kind of worship which is truly spiritual. We call what we do here worship, and it is. It's a form of worship. Believe me, I, I listen to music almost all my waking day. If I'm studying and I put on something that's, that doesn't have words, because that'll distract me, but I got music on all the time. 
Because music can set an atmosphere in your life, which ought to tell you, I need to be really careful what I listen to, because it'll influence you. But, but, but while music is, is important and it's powerful, by itself it is not an act of worship. Even more important than coming in, because we're in a corporate setting. We have musicians playing instruments that, that, that have practiced and they know the songs and the songs are anointed. And you can get into the presence of God with that. I can turn on music. I, I forget what it was. I was reading something or listening to it and they were talking about cell phones. The Harry Potter series of books, if you've ever seen those in a set, they're huge. Like six, five or six volumes to that. The memory in this simple cell phone you could, you could contain 186,000 copies of that entire work using just the memory in one cell phone. This thing is incredibly powerful. Well, I've got mine about half full of music. <laughs> and it doesn't matter what I need, I can find something in there to listen to that will affect what I'm doing. And I use it religiously. It's important, but even more important than that is just my everyday activities. It's what Barclay says here. Present your bodies to Him a living, consecrated sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, for that is the only kind of worship which is truly spiritual. My everyday workabout activities, that's my worship to God is what I'm doing, I'm doing as, as though God was here and I was working for Him. That's why Paul says several places, don't, be, don't work with eye service. Literally, that means don't just, you know, you play around, you can, you can watch any office. The, the, the activities of the employees will change when the boss walks in the door. Suddenly... You know, you, I, I know you've seen it in movies. People are, you know, they're playing games, they're on their computer, they're doing all kinds of stuff, and the second the boss, you hear the boss, somebody walking down the hang, you hit, uh, I think it's control tab, and it'll switch screens. Then suddenly the game's off and your spreadsheet's up there that you're supposed to be working on. That's working with eye service. That, when you do that, you dishonor Jesus. Why? Because this this company, this person is paying you to do a job. And if you're not doing the job they're paying you to do, then you are stealing from them and being a thief is not honoring to Jesus because he died so that we no longer have to be a thief. Wow. I'm preaching better than you're saying amen right now. Verse 2, Barclay. Do not shape your lives to meet the fleeting fashions of this world. You know, it's a sure thing about fashion. You live long enough, you're going to see fashions come right back through again. If you, if you own the big fat ties, you know, we wore them back in the 70s. My Lord, you tie that knot, that thing was like having a softball underneath your chin. They're starting to come back in style now. I'm not going to wear them. <laughs> I've refused to. It's just too big. But I also remember in the 60s having the ties that were about a half inch wide. All of those things will come by. But the fashions, every year, fashions have to change. Why? Because we need something new. We need something different. It's got to be edgy. I love that word. It's a dumb word, but I love it. 
That's what the world wants. They want something that's edgy. It's new. (laughs) There's nothing new out there. But don't conform your life to that, but be transformed from it by the renewing of your mind until the very essence of your being is altered so that in your own life you may prove that the will of God is good, well-pleasing, and perfect. I love particularly the way he says that because I have heard sermons before about, you know, you can, you can be in the good part of God's will or the um, um, well-pleasing or the perfect will of God. No, God only has one will, period. And it is good and it's well-pleasing and it's perfect. We'll never get there perfectly, but I'm striving to get there all the time. That's what Barclay, that's what Paul's talking about. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he tells us how we're going to do that process. How do we renew our minds? First of all, in verse 3, he reminds us, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. This is not something you're going to will yourself into. This is not something that you're going to, to um, by your own physical strength, your own mental strength, and believe me, some, there are some areas where people just, they have a will of iron. But there's, I don't care how strong your will is in one area, if you let me watch you long enough, I'll find an area where your will is not very strong. We've got a weakness. Every one of us does. Different areas. Now I've also, and this is, this is not my topic, but I've also noticed over the years, and it's one of the advantages of having lived a little while, and I've seen it in my own life, I've seen it in other people's lives, we tend to judge other people in areas I... Let me just personalize it. It's not we, me. I tend to get judgmental with, about other people in areas where I'm really strong and I'm pretty well walking out what I need to do. And that's their weakness. I don't know why they can't get that right. It's not that hard. I'm not that strong, and I can do it. But when it comes up against another person, and, and they're struggling with an area where I'm struggling, i got all kinds of mercy. Oh, brother, I understand what you're going through. I, is it, why? Because I'm judging it by my own standards. I'm judging it by my strengths and my weaknesses, and I need to judge it by this independent word. And I don't need to judge them. Although, you know, we do have to be observant with people. But especially when you're about to put your trust in somebody. But I'm not going to be judgmental. There's a difference between observing and being judgmental. Amen? Where I need to be judgmental is with my own behavior. I've said it before. I don't want to be responsible for how you behave. Because I have a full-time job keeping me straight. And there are days when I don't do a very good job of that. I don't need any extra work. I'm putting in about 150, 180 hours a week just keeping John straight. And that's a lot of overtime. So, you know, you come and ask me something, I'll give you the word as best I know it. And and there are times as a pastor that you'll come and ask me something and I may not know the answer, but God will show me something to share with you. But the only thing I can share is what the Word says. Because anything else is just coming out of me. And it may work, it may not work. 
I'd, I'd bet on not most of the time. But what do we do? We have weapons, but we don't war against the flesh. Verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. So I've got to pull down this stronghold. Let me just throw a little side thought here. I remember in the 80s, we, the church I was involved in, was associate pastor in, we were big into intercessory prayer. Unfortunately, at that time, the intercessory prayer group, the vast majority of our time was pulling down strong, regional strongholds of the enemy over regions. There may be times when God will call you to take authority over certain spirits. If He does, go for it. Because there are some things that, that will, will plague you personally. It's one of the things that we need to, if you read in, in Romans, Paul will say that, you know, we know not how we should pray as we ought, but the Holy Spirit will pray through us. It's one of the great gifts of the gift of tongues in your own private prayer life. It's given to you that you pray in the Spirit until God reveals to you. The old Pentecostal thing was, I'm going to pray through. What they were talking about praying through was you just keep praying and praying and praying and praying until you get a revelation. Until God says, this is what you need to do. This is how you need to pray. This is the thing you need to, to pray against. I heard an illustration that examines this really well. Um, this church was having a um, trunk or treat. It's Halloween. And instead of having a big harvest party inside a building, they had trunk or treat where everybody comes in. And this was in South Texas. It was a dry season. Hard for some place like us to have trunk or treat because you never know. I think four or five out of four of the last five Halloweens, it's been rainy here. So it's, you know, there's always a risk. But they lived where they had wet season, dry season, pretty easy to do. But this one person had a pickup truck, and on the edge of their pickup truck, they had brought a, a four by sheet of plywood that they extended out, put a couple of legs up to support it flat. And it had six holes in it. And they put a big drape over it. And it was a homemade whack-a-mole game where you have this big plastic mallet and the, the little mole pops up and you got to whack it back down. Well, this was the favorite game in the whole parking lot. All the kids wanted to go play whack-a-mole. You went up some steps on this little platform and you got six puppets that would keep popping their heads up and you had to whack them well this lady that's telling this story she's in line and there's a parent behind her with a little four-year-old little boy and it's a long line and he doesn't want to wait so he's talking to mom 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 can you just stay in this line i'll go over here and play this and then when you get ready here then i'll i'll come no honey you need to stay with me i don't you have to stay close don't want you running off by yourself. And he's just complaining and complaining. And then they get a little closer and he sees this and he looks at her and he says, what's the point of this game? You knock them down, they come right back. He said, this is, how can that be fun? And he, he watches a little while longer and then this lady said, all of a sudden I saw this little streak go by me. This four-year-old ran up to that place and he grabbed that sheet and he pulled that sheet off of that big, big thing. And lo and behold, there's three adults sitting in chairs with a puppet on each hand, popping the puppets up and down. And he wanted to know how it worked. That's what we need to do in prayer. That's this whole concept of getting a revelation. All we see are the puppets. 
We see the symptoms. We see the behaviors, whether it's in myself or in others. We need to pull the sheet back. It's the Wizard of Oz. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. The man behind the curtain is causing all the stuff out here, but this is the distraction. God wants you to stay in this thing till you get the revelation. The revelation is pulling the sheet back, pulling the curtain back, and suddenly you see why the things that you see are happening. Then you know how to pray. In our lives, we have to pull down strongholds in my own life. Verse 5, casting down arguments. It's my own thoughts and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. The Word says, we just read it in Psalm 103. He's forgiven our sins. He's healed all of our diseases. But brother, i got symptoms. I've been puking all night. Doesn't mean that Jesus didn't heal you. It means you're under attack. Well, He forgave my sins. He's made me the righteousness of God. Well, yeah, but you didn't see me on Thursday. I wasn't very righteous. That guy, you know, so-and-so said something to me, and I'll let him have it. You need that, that is your behavior exalting itself against the knowledge of God. God says you are holy. Your behavior doesn't line up. You need to figure out why. Why, why did that strike me so hard that I reacted out of my flesh? Because you know, I, there are, and, and let's get real here. Husbands, wives, this is where life is lived. Nobody can cut me as deep as my wife can. And nobody can cut her as deep as I can because I know her every weakness and she knows my every weakness. If she really wants to hurt me, she knows right where to go. I watched a silly little interview between these two people were actors and they had played characters and they were talking about their characters and they were both kind of secret agent type things. But they were, in the world's view, they were a little good and a little bad. But the guy asked the, the lady, the actors, he said, well, how do you see the last scene for us to play out before we leave this program? The, the show. It was an ongoing dramatic series. She said, oh, that's easy. She said, I see me coming up and giving you a passionate kiss, and right in the middle of the kiss, I'm going to take a big knife and shove it up in your heart. <laughs> and he was like, wow. Well, you know, that's exactly how Judas betrayed Jesus. He, in, in Judas's mind, he disarmed him with a kiss while he waved the guys over and said, this is the one. It's those that are closest to us that can wound us the worst. Because, and I, when I taught school, I used to try to tell this to kids, but, you know, I was an old fogey and they knew everything. But I, I would tell them constantly, I know you want to date. I know you want to have romance. Everybody wants romance. I mean, dear Lord, I grew up in the 60s. We had all of the, the old doo-wop love songs. Man, they, they don't have songs like that anymore. I mean, if you couldn't fall in love with some of those songs, you're sitting in a car with your girl, you, you have no heart. But one of the things that you see 
the most brokenhearted I ever was was when I was a freshman in high school. And I was, I was a teenager, and I was in love. And man, there is nothing stronger than teenage love. May not last long, but it's intense while it's there. And this girl decided she wasn't going, she was already dating some guy, just was too naive to know it. But rather than just coming up and breaking up with me, she got her friend to come and, and publicly ask me something, and I confessed my love to her, and then she ripped my heart out of my chest and stomped on it. And I'm telling you, oh, I, I'm a teenage boy. Teenage boys don't cry. I was a kid of the 60s. You didn't cry for anything. I went home. My mother, bless her heart, her blouse was soaking wet by the time she got done consoling me. I cried for hours. I had never had someone crush me, purposely tried to hurt me, publicly embarrassed me. And you know what? The next time I got into even a little bit of a relationship, there was a guard that came up. That ain't happening again. And I still deal, have to deal with situations like that. Some of those things, we think, well, that's just a childhood thing, but it can put a scar that affects behaviors years down the road. And I used to tell these kids, don't be so quick to give your heart to someone. You have to, someone that, that wants to have a relationship with you, and I don't care if it's a romantic relationship or just a friendly relationship. Guy to guy, girl to girl. And I mean that in the non-modern way, okay? I hate that I even have to explain that. But you have, before you trust someone, before you bring them, let them in to your innermost feelings, your innermost thoughts, you have to know you can trust them. That's what God is wanting from us. He's saying, look, you have all these thoughts. You have all these, these ways of thinking. You, you react to me because you've been in situations with other people and you think I may treat you the way they did. I'm not them. I'm perfect and I need you to renew your mind and learn that I'm not out to get you. I'm out for you. It's exactly what I shared. In my mind, I had the image of God ripping my daughter out of my hands and, and just saying, you're filthy, you're dirty, I can't let her stay with you. This is your punishment. And instead, Jesus is standing there saying, I know she's going to die, I know this is hard, but I've got her. I'll protect her. I'll nourish her. And when you come home, guess what? She'll be right here. No problems, no disease, no problems at all. It revolutionized my, my life when I realized that God was that for me. That He would do that. That's what Paul's saying. We need anything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Part of the problem is we, don't, we sometimes don't have a great knowledge of God. Amen? Look what he keeps on saying, though. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. This punishing disobedience is not talking about other people. It's talking about getting your own thinking straight. When your mind goes off and says, yeah, this is what God thinks about me. What does the Word say? 
I love you, Brother Hagin used to talk about it. He had one church that they were having a problem. And, and I mean, it was a dire problem. And all the board looked at him and said, what are we going to do? And his answer was simple. And I can see him saying it. Well, we're just going to act like the Bible's so. And it's a simple answer and it sounds flippant. But that is the answer. Just act like the book's true. Because if it is, then... And, and here's the, 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 the real problem. You ask most Christians, well, you ask every true Christian, what is the Bible about? And people will tell you, it's the key to life. It has the keys of everything I need in here. But then you follow that question up with another question. When's the last time you got in it and read it or studied it? Hmm, not, not, not a lot. You know, where I get my car fixed, get my car repaired, they, all of, every one of the technicians that works on my car has a patch. And I forget now. Um, ASC, that's not right. But there's a certification. Is it ASC? ASC certified. These guys, they're working on cars. <laughs> Now, that's not an easy job, and it takes some smart, especially with the modern cars. But they have to go every year and take some, uh, uh, some lessons to stay up on all of the new changes. They are studying for their craft to fix a machine that in 10 years we're going to ship it off to the junkyard and they're going to put it through a shredder and chew it up, recycle the metal, and recycle the plastic. And yet these guys, ever, they're constantly studying to stay up on what's going on. We're living life, and people are depending on us for their, their very existence, their very eternal existence. I'm living my own life, and my eternal existence depends on how much I know of this and how much, not really how much I know, but how much I'm living. And yet, do, is this part of my life? Is this something I consult daily? Is this, I get up, I'll guarantee you, you don't have to look at me too much, I don't miss a lot of meals. I eat every day. Do I consume the Word every day? Because if I quit eating... And I couldn't eat ever again. I got 30, 40, maybe 60 days. I'm gone. I'm out of energy. My body shuts down. I die. You put me in the grave. How much more? If I don't consume the Word. And, and if I do consume it, do I consume it just to get general principles? Or do I apply it to my own life? Do I examine the way I think? It's exactly what Paul says here. And believe me, the Corinthian church had some problems. And he's saying, guys, all the answers to your problems are right between your ears. All of your problems exist between your ears. And if you'll take my word and put it into your, between your ears, you'll figure out what to do. James said it, James 1.21, Lay aside all filthiness and the overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The word there for souls is suke. 
your mind, your will and emotions. You want to change the way you think, you want to change the way you live, you're going to have to receive. That is, that is a, a, um, a deliberate reception. That's just like the, um, I'm not a great football guy, never played it, well, played Sandlot football, but never real football. But you take a wide receiver, tight end, you take anybody that I'm going to throw a pass to. They don't just passively, I've seen a few of them, they get their route wrong, and I've seen a few quarterbacks knock a football against the back of their head. They weren't deliberately receiving the ball. In fact, one of the plays that you work on over and over again, especially if you have a big running game, is the quarterback handing the ball to the receiver and the receiver receiving it. It's when, when they quit doing it on purpose, they fumble a lot. You can't get a step ahead. You can't think about the hole. you got to get the ball before you can run with the ball. That's what James is saying here. You have to deliberately receive the Word. And it's not just the Word, it's the implanted Word. That means you stick it in your heart until it starts to grow. You can take seeds and put them in dirt, but if you don't water them, they won't sprout. And if you quit watering them at any time, they'll start to shrivel. The Word and the water, the Word is the seed, but the Word is also the water. Ephesians 6 says that, that, that um, Jesus washed us with the washing of the Word. He also says the Word is a seed. So the same Word that plants a seed in your heart will also water that seed, and if you meditate on it long enough, it's what Paul, or not Paul, but what, what God said to um, Joshua. In Joshua 1, you don't have to go there, but in the first five verses... He first says, I am giving you the land. Then he says, I have given you the land. He says, go take the land that I'm giving you because I've already given you that land. And then he finishes up at the end of verse 5 and he says, I will not leave you nor forsake you. In other words, the same word, my same promise that this land is now yours. You're on this side of the Jordan, the land's on that side of the Jordan, but I've already given it to you. Now get over there and get it. There's some giants you're going to have to fight. There's some walls that are going to have to come down. But I've already given you, and I will not leave you, and I will not forsake you. The battle is not yours, the battle is mine. Just go do something. Pick up a weapon and go stand your watch and watch me work. And it's amazing, it's not recorded here in Joshua, but when they actually went in, one of the first things that happened is it says the angel of the Lord came and stood before Joshua. And Joshua said, are you for us or are you for them? And it was Jesus. It was a pre-incarnate um, revelation or manifestation of, of the second person of the Godhead. And the reason I know that was because in this conversation, Joshua hit his knees and worshipped him. And had it not been the second person of the Godhead, an angel would have snatched him up off his knees and said, don't worship me. But instead, that being received Joshua's worship. But when Joshua said, are you for us or are you for them? His answer was simple. No. No what? That doesn't tell me anything. 
It's like Gina and I were trying to figure out the other day, you know, um, I gave her a couple of choices of where we might go somewhere to eat. I said, what would you like to do? Yes. And I looked at her and it, it just went, she, after she said it, she realized what she'd said and we both just, we could hardly do anything for almost wrecked the car for laughing. Because it's like it, you had a choice and your answer was affirmative, but which? Well, Joshua put a question to Jesus, us or them? And he said, nope. Why? Because he wasn't there for either. He said, I'm the commander of the host of heaven. And I'm for you if you are for me. I'm going to take the land. The question is, you coming with me? Now, I'm for you. I already told you I'd never leave you, I'd never forsake you. But now when it's, it's time to put the rubber to the road, are you going to go with me? Because I'm not here for you. I'm here because this is heaven's deal. God has redeemed us from destruction. He's done all the things He's done because He loves us and He wants to have a relationship with us. But this is a whole lot bigger than me and Him. It's a whole lot bigger than just, John needs to be blessed today, God. Jesus, put a hold on the entire world. Stop it. I need you. And he's going to say, son, I love you. I want to bless you. But this is not just about you. I got big things going on. I'm doing this. Are you going to get in with me? The great thing is, I've got all these needs. But when I find, when I start cooperating with Him and what He wants to do, suddenly my needs come along and, and, and I find my needs being met. Go over to um, Matthew chapter 6. And I'm going to close with this. Don't, don't pack up yet because you know my closings. It could be another hour. Matthew chapter 6. Now keep this, this, this one thought in mind as we read this. God told Joshua, and I, I didn't finish, let me, let me throw this in while you're going there. Through the first five verses, God said, I'm giving you the land, I've given you the land, and I won't leave you and forsake you. But six through, through nine, four verses, three different times He told Joshua to be strong and courageous. But in the middle of that, he also said, Meditate on my word day and night that you may observe to do. It's not enough to know. If you don't know it, do it. Like the old joke that, the, you know, Chuck and Noni just celebrated their marriage anniversary. Well, there was the old country boy who had been married 40 years. And his wife came to me on the anniversary and she said, Honey, do you still love me? You don't ever tell me you love me. And he looks at her and he says, well, I told you I loved you the day we got married. Did you not listen? Well, you may need to say it a little more often than that. The observe to do is not just what you believe. You know, the old illustration, if I want to know what you value in life, let me look at your checkbook. That tells me a lot about what you value. But if I really want to know what you, what you value... Let me look at your daytimer, if you still understand what daytimers are. This is an older crowd, we probably do. Let me see what, what your schedule has been like for, the, like for the last six months. Where are you investing your time? 
Now, with that, let me tell you, your, the greatest investment of time is going to be if you're working at your job. It just requires a lot. But as you are doing your job, how are you doing it? Are you doing it with the mind that I'm doing this job as if I, I'm doing it for Jesus? Because if you're just doing it absent-mindedly and doing it halfway, it may not count as, for much with Him. And I, I like, I, when I was working, I wanted my boss to always think good things of me. Because that's where my raises came from, and I always wanted more, more money. But even more important, I want God to, to look at my time sheet and say, Good job, buddy. This is, this is your annual performance review. <laughs> Only with God, it's a daily performance review. But we're in, in Matthew chapter 6. Look at the first, very first verse. Taken in, in consideration, God told us in Joshua, Meditate on the Word day and night, that you may observe to do. Meditation is, is literally, the, the Hebrew word there means to mutter or to say repeatedly. You're constantly thinking about it. You're constantly reciting it. You're, you're, you're trying to figure out, how do I implement this? How do I do this? Well, in Matthew chapter 6, very first verse, Take heed that you, do not, that you not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. First principle here, don't do what you do so that people see what you do. But let's go, we're in, in Matthew 6, go to verse 25. This is the, the, the culmination of all this. Remember, meditation is just reciting things. Worry, which is what Jesus is going to talk about here, is meditating on your lack instead of God's provision. Jesus says here in verse 25, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. I love the King James Version. Take no thought for your life. Because that really does hit the key. Don't think about and concern yourself about your life. What you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither soar nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are they not more of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to a stature? You know, I haven't met too many people that were satisfied with their bodies. He's talking about height here. But let's just take it into everything. You know, and men, we always joke about this with the women. You know, your wife, typical wife question. Does this make, these pants make me look fat? Answer that one to your own death. Why do they ask that? Because they're, they're, they're concerned about the appearance. Now, we can joke about our wives doing that and women doing that, but believe me, I've seen a lot of men that spend just as much time in front of the mirror as the women do. They want, every, they want their hair coiffed, you know. I don't have to worry about that, which is not a great sacrifice. I'll tell you, I've had people tell me, you know, one little kid, well, it was, I don't, it was either Malachi or Memphis. I was teasing them at the funeral home. They had had their hair, they had gotten the new haircut where it's shaved on the sides and fairly long on the top. I said, guys, why didn't you just do a good job and just shave it all the way across? I said, you could look just like me. And they looked up at me and said, 
but you're bald. <laughs> and I, I looked at him, I said, what? What do you mean I'm bald? And it, they, you know, they had never heard that, that joke, which is, it's nice to deal with younger kids. They haven't heard all of your old jokes. But they're saying, what, what Jesus is saying here, these things don't amount to anything. Why are you thinking so much on these things? If you uh, go down to verse um, 28. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. This time of year, I, I, I grew up in the country. I love the country. I love to go out. And one of the things I loved about it you can go out sometimes in a field and there'll be a whole field in the springtime when it first gets warm and the, the ground's good and moist and you'll get wild flowers that will sprout up and it's more beautiful than any, any garden ever planted. God's saying, I can do that with just a bunch of dirt. Why are you... And every one of these, I love it, the King James keeps saying, taking thought. Where the new King James says worry, King James says taking thought. Verse 30, Now if God so clothes the grass of the field which is today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not more clothe you, O you of little faith? O you of negative faith, apistia. Therefore, verse 31, Do not worry, saying, saying, back to our mouths, it's not just what you think, but it's what you think and activate with your mouth. Oh, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm so confused. Well, keep saying it, and that's what you'll do. I love Charles Capps' illustration. He, you know, people used to criticize him because he was big on confession. He said, you know, and he, he was a farmer. He said, if I go on my back porch and I look around and my dog's not there... He said, I can stand there for hours and say, my dog is not here. Lord, I don't know where my dog is. He said, if I want my dog, what do I do? I whistle and say, come on, dog. You start calling the dog. What we say calls in what we're going to have. And I know people say, that confession business is just, you just go too far on it. You're living what you have talked for years. Most of us, the reason that our lives are such a mess that for years, most of us for an entire lifetime, we've talked negative, we've talked problems. That's what comes out of our mouth most of the time. And then we come in and, whoa, God wants me healed. Well, bless God, I am healed. Oh, it still hurts. Well, I guess, I guess that confession just doesn't work. For 20 years you confess that you can't do this, that this hurts or that hurts. And you confess a half a dozen times that God's healed you and you don't see results and yet, yeah, it doesn't work. Now devote as much time to what God says as you've devoted to what your body says or what the devil says about you and you'll see results. Verse 31. Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. This is the key. But seek first 
the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And the, the, the point of this is, if you look at the example of the rich young ruler, he came and he told Jesus, Jesus said, follow the law, and he listed a few things. And the rich young ruler looked at him, he said, I've done all of that. No, he hadn't. No one's followed the law perfectly, ever. The purpose of the law was to show us that we were sinners, so we would look for a Savior. But the rich young ruler, he set up his own laws. He only saw the ones that he could keep, and that was the only ones. That those I know, the, I know the Word says that, but I can't do that real well. These I've kept, so I'm righteous. So Jesus hit him where he hurt. One of the laws that the rich young ruler couldn't keep was the, 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 the law that said, don't covet. And he coveted his riches. Jesus wasn't opposed to him being rich. Jesus was opposed to him being covetous. So he told him, sell everything you got. Give it all away and come follow me. And he walked away and said, I can't do that. And then the disciples said, Lord, what was that all about? And he said, it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Not because being rich is wrong, but a lot of people got rich because they devoted their whole life to getting money. And they had the philosophy of get all you can, can all you get, sit on the can. And it's not the money that's the problem, it's the philosophy and what you're willing to do to get the money that's the problem. Because Jesus told the disciples there, He said, look... <coughs> Anybody that's given up anything, house, property, and he went through the list, for my sake and the gospels, I will give them back all those things plus eternal life. He wasn't opposed to the things. He was opposed to them not conforming their life to what was valuable to Him. And anything you have that you're not willing to sacrifice for Him, if He asks you to sacrifice it for Him, it's become an idol. That is a thought that has exalted itself against Him. That thought you have to take captive. You have to take it captive. You have to say, no, I'm not going to value anything. If I do, then I've just made it an idol. It's more important than me following Jesus. Now, what may be an idol in my life may not be an idol in your life. What I may find really hard to give up, you may not find hard to give up. This is why God, Paul said, quit comparing yourselves amongst yourselves. Because I'm going to go, to be honest with you, what I'm going to do if I'm going to uh, make myself feel good, I'm going to go surround myself with people that can give up all the things that I gave up. And we're going to have a, a bless me party. Aren't we great? I used to be in part of a church where quite frequently heard, you know, we're different from them. We were superior. We were a word church. Well, I hope we're a word church, but that doesn't make me different from them. The rank of sinner driving down 31 out of here, I'm no different than them if I start ignoring this word. I can be saved and, and bound for heaven if I throw the Word down, just decide I'm going to live by my own wits. won't be long. I'll be living the same lifestyle they are. Maybe heaven bound, 
but I'm living for hell today. I have to conform my life to the Word. And if I don't get in the Word and find out what the Word says, I can't conform my life to something I don't know. We can't read God's mind. We have to get into the Word and find out what His mind is. Paul says we have the mind of Christ. But if you don't spend time with Him and fellowship with Him and ask Him, and then once He tells you, start doing it. You can't live a life conformed to Him. You can't, as we, we, we saw last time, we can't do that Schofield's middle portion of salvation, which is living it out every day, being sanctified day by day by day by day. I am saved because I've received Christ. I'm going to get saved physically when Jesus returns. Today, i got to get sanctified by finding out what the Word says and walking it out the best I can. To be honest with you, my life has been lots, a few Jerichos and a lot of AIs. I have some conquers, and I've gone up against some little things that have just whipped me badly. Why? Because I didn't seek God. I didn't figure out what He wanted. I didn't do it His way. So I got whipped. Well, get up, dust yourself off, run to 1 John 1, 9. Say, Lord, I sinned again. Well, but I was trying to follow and do something good. Yeah, but if you didn't do it God's way, it's still sin. Um, Paul says, anything that's not of faith is sin. That's a tough standard. It can't be a faith if I'm not putting my faith in something that the Word said. Amen? It's a tough thing to do. And, and I say that with all the realization that none of us are going to be able to do it real well. But as Andrew Womack says, I haven't arrived, but at least I'm on the train. It's a, it's a daily effort. I have to get in it, stay in it, Apply it, and when I screw up, repent, start again. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this message has blessed you, we invite you to visit us in person at the corner of Highway 31 South and Southport Road, Indianapolis, Indiana, or visit us online at FCCIndianapolis.com.